As, as big as this uh, book is, Lord, it doesn't even begin to plumb the depths of who you are and your greatness and your majesty. It is absolutely beyond our comprehension, your greatness, your magnificence, your, your power, your wisdom, your purpose, your plan, your holiness, your justice, your mercy. And by necessity, we are busy. We're busy living life, and we're busy doing life, and fulfilling our responsibilities and the task that you have given to us. And so much of our, so much of our existence is uh, checking things off the list and uh, returning phone calls and trying to get through emails and just a lot of stuff. And it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of energy and and we get tired and we and we get uh, worn down and we get exhausted and then and then we're dealing with stuff that's not pleasant and hard situations and disappointment in relationships and various things that come our way and we find ourselves at times um, getting our feet knocked out from under us but that's where we need to think and that's where we need to be reminded of what's true about you and who you are so we thank you that we have a revelation we thank you that we have your word we thank you that we have a bible we can trust and we thank you that in that bible you tell us about yourself and about your nature and your character and the more we find out about you the more we understand that we can absolutely trust you with everything in our lives and how foolish it is for us to try to keep control because in actuality we don't control anything very little can we control we control our, our choices. But so much is out of our control, but not out of yours. So as we come in here tonight, and we've had, you know, it's already midweek. And a lot of stuff has happened since the weekend. And we're dealing with a lot of different things. And we checked off our list on Friday, and now we've got twice as many things on it. And we're dealing with all this and this and that. And as we come in here and sit down and just kind of catch our breath, remind us, Lord, of, of who you are and the amazing fact that we have access to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. That is a phenomenal thing. We come right into the Holy of Holies. We come right into your presence through the blood of Christ. And we have your undivided attention. You're concerned about every detail, every issue, every concern, is your concern. Thank you for these men. Thank you for their commitment to study your word. Thank you for the encouragement they continually give me. And Lord, we're grateful. Uh, we're grateful to be able to study your word on Wednesday nights. We're grateful for uh, for our church, for how you raised this church up, and and all that you did providentially to make this happen. And we're thrilled about being able to go into this new facility just because we're going to be able to service 
uh, more folks and more folks can come in from the community who need you and need your word. And we, we're just very cognizant that we've received much favor from you. So tonight, as, as your men, we want to say thank you. Help us to finish strong tonight. As uh, we wrap up this spring and head into the summer. I'm reminded that Paul told Timothy to watch over your life and your doctrine very carefully. So as we study your word tonight, we want to be careful that we study it in its context. Not add to it or take away from it. But we also want to be careful tonight that we're not just hearers, but that we're doers. Help us to apply this to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our mother who art in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 is where we are as we wrap up the Lord's Prayer. That is not what Jesus said. Um, but interestingly enough, it, uh, it's a very popular idea in, in Christian circles. There's always some book that's the latest, greatest rage. And uh, over the last several weeks, uh, this, this one book title keeps coming up over and over and over again. And Friday I'm flying to Atlanta, and the lady sitting next to me uh, pulls out this book, and then the guy next to her pulls out his New Testament. So I figure we're pretty much I'm pretty much among friends, so we all start talking. And uh, I ask her how far she was into the book, and she wasn't all that far in. And uh, anyway, it was just. She said, have you read this? And I said, I read a portion of it. And it's just interesting because everybody's reading this book. And uh, you say, well, what's, what's the point? Why are you bringing it up? I'm bringing it up because uh, we live in an interesting age where there are, um, there are a lot of ideas. Hey, there's a lot of nonsense outside the church, is there not? There's just a lot of foolishness. There, 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 there's a lot of wasted ideas and a lot of wasted conversation and a lot of wasted energy and a lot of, there's just a lot of foolishness. There's, there's a lot of uh, stuff that doesn't matter. I was reading last week uh, about a guy in Sports Illustrated, and this guy's claim to fame, and, and I should have brought the article, but I didn't. This guy's claim to fame is that he hasn't missed a day surfing since um, 1975, and he lives in Bodega Bay, California. Now, if you've ever been to Bodega Bay, California, you've got to be out of your mind to go surfing every day at Bodega Bay because that's way up north. It's sort of like living off the coast of Scotland. I, I've golfed at the Bodega Bay golf links before, and it's just like golfing in Scotland. You're going straight up a hill, and there's sand, and there's... I mean, it's, it's not real... It's not Pebble Beach. 
And if you get in the water, the water's 50 degrees. And this guy has never missed a day surfing. And it tells his whole story. And at the end of the story, he says, we all have such a short time to live, we need to spend it wisely. I think I would agree with that. And that's this guy's claim to fame. He hasn't missed a day since 1975. And he's been through like 35 wetsuits and 60 boards. And that doesn't add up to me. Just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But you expect that when people don't know the Lord. And when they're trying to find meaning and they're trying to find purpose. Um, we're studying the Lord's Prayer. And when we started studying the Lord's Prayer, I'm sure a lot of you guys thought, and you, I wouldn't blame you if, you if you thought this, that, well, gosh, you know, I mean, I, I, mean, I know the Lord's Prayer. I've known this since I was this high. Everybody, everybody knows the Lord's Prayer. And then we, we broke it down. And as you know, when you pray, Jesus said, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven. And then we, we spent a whole night just on the Father. Now, what's interesting about that is that this book that's going around that's so hot that everybody's reading and everybody's passing on, and this, you know, and a lot of people are very, very positive about this book. And I had, a, I had some guys in here encourage me to read the book. And uh, I got to a certain page and I quit, and then I picked it up again, and then I quit again. This book is called The Shack. And I'm going to go ahead, and, and you say, well, why are you bringing this up? Because it, it correlates with what we're saying or, or what we're studying in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. Now, what's interesting about this book is that it has a premise. And you know how somebody will say, I'm not going to tell you what's in the book? I'm going to tell you what's in the book. It's a story of a guy, and I've alluded to it before, who... Uh, uh, grows up in a real abusive home, and his father is a drunk, although he's a churchgoer, and just beats the crud out of his mother. And then when the kid gets 12 or 13, he tries to defend his mom, and he goes to church and tells one of the deacons, and the deacon then, before the kid can get home, they live out on a farm, the deacon gets, you know, calls up his father and says, hey, your son's spreading rumors about you. So this father ties the boy up to a tree and beats him for two days straight. So, uh, oh, and then what he does is, he, um, he uh, I'm blanking because I read it a few weeks ago. He basically um, puts a strychnine in all of his dad's hidden whiskey bottles, and he leaves. So he murders his father. And then years later, he's married and has a family, and then his daughter, his little girl, they're out in the wilderness somewhere in eastern Oregon or eastern Washington. And... Uh, what happens is, as they're fishing and all the kids are running around, somebody comes and kidnaps his daughter and then murders her. And he finds the body in this little cabin, this little shack that they're staying in. And then you can imagine, it's a pretty horrific scene. So now he's got all these questions about God the Father. And then, years later, he gets a note. And the note says, meet me at the shack where his daughter was killed. Is this a joke? What is it? Da, da, da. So he goes back. And it's in the middle of nowhere. So he's, you know, peering through the trees and not sure if you ought to go in or not. 
And when he goes in, uh, he's kind of shocked because uh, it's not threatening, it's very welcoming. And there is a, uh, there's a black woman there. And there is a, there's a, then there's an Asian woman, and then there's a, some guy who's a carpenter. Well, this is the Trinity. Now, the carpenter is Jesus. The black woman, can you figure out who the black woman is? Oh, by the way, her name is Papa. That's God the Father. And the Asian woman is the Holy Spirit. You guys still with me? (laughs) Now, a lot of people really like this book, and they say, when you get to that particular page where I stop, don't stop, keep going. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, the reason I'm bringing this up is we live in a, in a world, we live in a Christian world, I think, that is very, very weak biblically. There are some things in here that would be helpful to people that have been, that have been hurt and have had a lot of pain. But there are some things in here that are very deficient biblically and theologically. They just are. And the reason I'm bringing it up, this up is that we, you're going to hear about it if you haven't already heard about it. And some of you guys may have read this and really liked it, and you got 14 cases in your trunk that you're giving away. And that's your call. But I want to read a section to you when this guy walks into this shack, and he meets this black woman. And, and it's not the issue that she's black. So, you know, let's not do the race thing. I mean, she could be a chartreuse woman or a, 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 the Holy Spirit's a, a, an Asian woman. That's not the issue. Um, so this guy's kind of, this is blowing him away. He's figuring out what's going on here with the Trinity, you see. And I'll just pick it up here. Uh, he was saying, he's saying to Papa, who's a woman, that this is kind of hard for him to figure this out. And it says, she picked up the wooden, the wooden spoon again, dripping with some sort of batter. And she says, Mackenzie, I am neither male nor female, even though both genders are derived from my nature. If I choose to appear to you as a man or a woman, it's because I love you. Now, you know what? Let me tell you something. You just can't ride by that. You can't just blow over this. And what concerns me is that Eugene Peterson, who did the paraphrase of the message, says this book has the potential to do for our generation what John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress did for his. It's that good. I would say the difference between this book and John Bunyan's book is that the metaphors in Pilgrim's Progress fit the Word of God. And if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you ought to go read it. It's the second best-selling book in history. In history. And all the metaphors are right out of the scriptures. And, you know, it's written in the old Shakespearean English, but you can get a modern-day translation. Let me finish this paragraph. If I choose to appear to you as a man or a woman, and this is the Father. If I choose to appear to you as a man or a woman, it's because I love you. For me to appear to you as a woman and suggest that you call me Papa is simply to mix metaphors, now watch this, to help you you keep from falling so easily back into your 
religious conditioning. Now think about what it's saying. I can appear to you as a woman or a man or you call me Papa, whatever. Why do I do that? To help you from falling so easily back into your religious conditioning. See, when I read that, I think, you mean falling back into what the Bible teaches about God? Because you see, the whole point of this, as I understand it from everyone who's finished it, the point is, this guy's been so wounded by his human father, and then when his daughter was murdered, he is so disappointed in his heavenly father, who could have stopped it and prevented it, and who didn't, and this guy has such significant issues that God does not appear as a father, but God appears as a black woman because he can't handle the father issue. Now, i got a problem with that. Because in Matthew chapter 6, where we are in the Lord's Prayer, if you've been here, you've heard me say this many times, from verse 1 of chapter 6 to verse 18, 10 times Jesus refers to God as Father. And this Father that we have, Psalm 34 says, He is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. God the Father. In other words, however you've been hurt, however you've been crushed, whatever questions you've had about God and about his goodness, and at times we've all had that, the answer is not to change who God is. The answer, the answer is to remember that, it is, that he is our Father which art in heaven. That's the answer. It's not to change gender. It's not to change color. It's a, anyway. You see, when you've got, you got a right father, you've got everything. And he's a compassionate father. And he's a good father. And he's a gracious father. This stuff disturbs me. I, I just got to tell you. I just think it's interesting. We're doing the Lord's Prayer. And here we are. In fact, when we were doing the thing on the Father, I thought, you know, I'm probably spending too much time on this. And then I found out this thing's going like hotcakes. And the whole issue is, well, you know, he can't really appear as a father. No, he's a father. He's a father. And it's not religious conditioning. It's biblical doctrine. That's what it is. So I did a little research on this because I'd never heard of the publisher. So I did a little research today. And I find out the publishing house started by a guy who was with a missions organization for six years. Oh, and this particular missions organization teaches Socinianism, which is a 17th century heresy that teaches open theism, which basically teaches that God doesn't know the future and God doesn't know what's going to happen. You say, well, how do you know that for a fact? Because I went on a summer missions trip with that organization when I was 16 years old, and I sat under a guy for a week who taught all high school students that God has put limitations on himself and God doesn't know the future. And they've denied publicly they teach it, but I sat there for a week and heard it, and I even called my dad and told him they were teaching it. And that guy was an executive. Okay, anyway. And then I found out that the author was just speaking this week at a seminary 
uh, Fuller, that used to be very committed to the Word of God, but has real significant issues with the trustworthiness of Scripture. Oh, and then one of these guys has a radio program, and he references Chuck Colson's Breakpoint editorial, which Chuck did last week by email after it was on the radio, and they critique that, and then they got a radio program on what they call the Doctrine Police. Did you catch that? They, have, they devote their radio program to the Doctrine Police. Who are the Doctrine Police? Those are the guys that take the Bible real seriously and have a problem with the mixing of metaphors with... That's what I found out this afternoon about the guys that are involved in this book. And you're going to run into it. So... Oh, and then I found this little, I started earmarking it. And then there's a certain point where he's, guys who believe in open theism, who believe that God doesn't know the future, and that whole, that whole view of God, that God has limited himself and God doesn't know the future. And anyway, and these guys are serious and it's everywhere. They just had a big conference at Azusa Pacific College in California on this. Their whole big deal is that God limits himself. God puts limits on himself. And as he's having a conversation around the dinner table, uh, uh, I think it's Papa who says to him, we have limited ourselves out of respect for you. <laughs> to me, that's, that's just red flags, if you know the theological jargon. Anyway, enough of that. Um, and when I say enough of that, I mean enough of that. You don't play with who God is. You don't play. And, and here's, I, I want to go back to this. Why is, it, why is it that God the Father has been sufficient to heal broken hearts forever, and suddenly that's not enough? Why is it that you have to change the persona of God because we can't handle who God is? That makes no sense to me biblically. None. None. Okay. I just want everybody to like me. Okay? You say, that's your opinion. Well, what I'm doing, I'm taking it and I'm trying to compare it to the Word of God. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's what you should do when you read a book. Any book. Now, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Now, stop and think about this. As we discussed one night, when he says, Hallowed be thy name, that means we want your name to be honored. Does it honor God when you can't even refer to God, who he is, as Father? Does that reverence God when that's not enough or when it's got to be changed or someone's so broken that won't heal the brokenhearted? I don't think it does, personally. We want your name to be honored. That's the first petition. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Whose kingdom? The Father's kingdom. Your will be done. Whose will? The Father's will. On earth as it is in heaven. We want the Father's will to be done in heaven because the Lord is good and does good. He can be trusted. Huh? Say it again. What did I say? What, obviously, what I said was wrong. We want the Lord's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not what I said. That's what I meant. 
Okay. I'm glad you caught it. I'm glad you're editing. No, no, I'm glad because I don't want to say the wrong thing. You remember I told you last week when I get to May, I start making a lot of mental mistakes? Remember I told you that? See, there you go. Thanks. Give us this day our daily bread. Who should give us this day our daily bread? Our Father. It goes on and says in the Sermon on the Mount that if a father asks us, see, if a son asks a father for a loaf of bread, he won't give him a stone, will he? Why not? Because he's a good father that meets the needs of his children. And then he says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is where we land tonight. We've got the last two petitions tonight. But once again, this is a model prayer that Jesus gives. When you pray, pray like this. Not that you've got to pray it exactly this way, but here is sort of the approach. And when you pray, you want to incorporate, you want to incorporate these different ideas. Uh, so tonight our focus is on, on 12 and it's on 13 of Matthew chapter 6. Um, verse 12 is an interesting verse that contains an interesting idea. And verse 12 is actually connected with verse 14 and 15. And it can be, um, well, let me read it to you, those, those verses. And then let's talk about it. Because it presents a little bit of a problem. If you're not, um, uh, some of us met at Cotton Patch, and we ate uh, huge amounts of food. And they were bringing out the cornbread in in barrels. And we were consuming it. I I didn't. I was watching the other guys. Just gluttony would make you sick. The sin at that table was beyond belief. So those guys are going to nod off if they're not already out. All right? Verse 12. Now watch this. And, and just watch this carefully, right? The Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now go to 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You see any disconnect there at all? Anything make, bring a red flag up to you? I think it's interesting. And this is the Lord Jesus talking here. When you pray, pray this way. Forgive us our debts. Have we sinned against God? Yes, we have. So that's a good thing today, to pray. Forgive us our debts. Uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, that's a good thing to pray. But then he gets more serious in 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me that if I don't forgive someone who wronged me, that God will not forgive me? Is that the gospel of grace? Is that the gospel of mercy? Creates a little bit of a problem. Um... Whenever you study the Bible, one of the principles that is so important is the principle of context. 
And when there is a disconnect or an apparent disconnect, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, if you pull back and look at the context, you can get the explanation for which seems to be a problem. Now, if, if God won't forgive you until you forgive others, we got a problem. Because in Ephesians 2.8, just one example, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If salvation is a gift of God, then how is it that if I don't forgive this guy, my father won't forgive me? That doesn't sound like a gift to me. You see the problem? You see the issue? Sure you do. So how do we resolve it? How is it that we come, how is it that we come to have our sins forgiven? You say, well, I exercise faith. Yes, you do. But the basis, the real basis of your being forgiven is not faith. The real basis of your being forgiven is grace. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Wait a minute, I, I exercise faith in Christ. Yes, you do. But where did you get the faith to believe in Christ? Because when you started out and I started out, we didn't have faith. Read Psalm 14. We had no interest in God. We didn't seek God. We didn't want God. We were dead in our sins. Ephesians 2.1. And if you take that on down, it says, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. How did he make us alive? The same way he made Lazarus alive. He had to do something in our hearts. You see, grace worked on Lazarus. And I've used this illustration in here 15 times. So I'm going to use it 16. Because it's a great illustration. When Jesus went to the tomb and Lazarus was there, and Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Now let me ask you something. What was Lazarus's condition? He was dead. Okay, how do dead men hear? Not real well. They got a little bit of a hearing issue because they're dead. So in order for Lazarus to hear the voice of Jesus, Jesus had to make him alive through grace so that he could respond in faith. Does that make sense? That's why John Newton didn't write Amazing Faith, How Sweet the Sound. He wrote Amazing Grace, which is where you get the faith, because faith is a gift of God. Is it not? So the fact that we believed was, was an act of grace. He enabled us to believe. He gave me the power to believe. He gave me the wherewithal because I was dead as a doornail. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that any man should boast. You see? So grace, grace is, is the basis for, for the reason that, that, that we know him. Good, I'm glad someone got that door. Um, that absolutely distracted me, and I lost my whole point. So I'm going to ask the ushers again if they'll come forward. <laughs> Gosh, I just lost that. Where was I going on that? For, oh, okay, all right, okay. All right. I lost it again. <laughs> What's that? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's right. Larry, why don't you come up here and just finish this out for me, okay? Because you're obviously paying attention more than I am. I appreciate that very much. If it's grace, if it's grace, then how is it that I've got to forgive somebody, and if I don't forgive them, then God won't forgive me? How does that work? That doesn't seem to me to be grace. All right, let's back up, and here's the answer. In Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about the conduct of those who are, if you, for lack of a better term, citizens of the kingdom of God. This is in the middle of a sermon called the Sermon on the Mountain, or the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, now, so we're going to get a context here. Right? You just don't pick it out and just take it and go any way you want to go. The, the solution to our dilemma in the Lord's Prayer is understanding the context. So, in Matthew 5, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, who's he teaching? He's teaching the disciples. Now, you've got a multitude of people there. Are they all his disciples? No. No. It's like on a Sunday morning. You got all kinds of people that show up here on Sunday morning. Some are believers, some are non-believers. Now, a lot of churches um, get things wrong on Sunday morning, to be honest with you. The church in which I was raised and the church many of you guys were raised, on Sunday morning, the pastor, every Sunday morning, would preach an evangelistic message to the unbelievers laying out the gospel and appealing to them to respond to the gospel. At least that's how I was raised. Every Sunday morning was, was focused on unbelievers. Flip with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll see the blueprint that's supposed to take place when the church is gathered. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So different gift, gifted men that have been given, okay? Now, why did he give these gifted men? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. If I read that correctly, you know what that tells me on a Sunday morning, what ought to be happening? When you've got the church gathered, and you've got believers there, and there are also unbelievers, now, the majority of them are believers, I think we could, we could safely say. So the majority in the church I grew up in, we probably on a Sunday morning had, you know, four or 500 believers, and we probably had, you know, 10, 15, 20 unbelievers. But the 10 or 15 unbelievers got all the attention. But this says that on a Sunday morning, when we got all these people here, the focus of the pastor's remarks ought to be the saints. It ought to be the believers. In other words, he opens up the word of God to the believers, and in so doing, he equips the believers to go do the work of ministry. That's how it's supposed to work. So if you consistently sit under a pastor that follows this and teaches the word of God, you're going to grow in your faith, you're going to develop spiritual muscle, you're going to uh, find out that you can share the gospel and you can talk to someone at work, 
And, you know, the pastor can't run all over town going to your workplace. They won't even let him in. But you can be there, and there will be a teachable moment and a moment when the Spirit of God is working. And what can happen is the Spirit of God will take the Word of God that has been given to you and has been equipped, and you say, I can't do this, but you can do it. You just don't know that you can because you never tried it before. And then you haltingly try to share the gospel, and you've had the experience. Some of you guys are sharing the gospel, and you don't think you did a real good job, and the guy responds. Because you've been equipped to do the work of service. But if you sit there for 15 years every Sunday, and all you listen to are remarks being given to unbelievers, you're not going to grow. What's ha- that's sort of what's happening on the Sermon on the Mount. You've got all these people on the mountain, but as I understand it, the focus of the remarks that Jesus is making is to believers. It's to citizens of the kingdom. Let me show you why I think that's true. Now go back, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6, because this is going to explain our dilemma. Jesus starts into this sermon, and he says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Watch this. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the citizens of the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If this is going on in your heart, uh, look at uh, uh, verse 5. Blessed are the are the meek. And a guy asked me this week in Atlanta, isn't meekness weakness? No, meekness is humility. That's what meekness is. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Who's going to inherit it? Believers. Look at uh, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, how do you get to be pure in heart? He's got to work in your life by grace and in faith you reach out to him. That's how you get pure in heart. So you see how the focus here is on believers and the behavior of those in the kingdom of God? Uh, Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Are unbelievers persecuted for the sake of righteousness? No. But believers are who God has worked in their lives by grace. And what does it say? Well, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone gets the kingdom of heaven. Only believers get the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about believers All the way down, verse 14. Look at verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Are non-Christians the salt of the earth? Christians are the salt of the earth. Citizens of the kingdom are salt of the earth. Then he says in 14, you're the light of the world. So who is he referring to in the Sermon on the Mount? He's talking about believers. So when you get to Matthew 6, same sermon, same context, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. Not everyone can call God Father. Who can call God Father? Sons and daughters of the king. Okay, then note this. He says, now watch how this fits. And forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you don't forgive others, then your Father will, will not forgive your transgressions. I think the point that's being made here corresponds with 2 Corinthians 13. Flip over there. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 in particular. Gosh, I can't believe that. I just looked at my watch. I'm sorry, excuse me, I just shocked myself. My gosh. Okay. Well, we're going to go ahead and meet next, next Wednesday, guys. Um, this is not our last night. Actually, actually, I'm going to hustle here, okay? Um, watch this. 
13.5. This is a very interesting text. He says, he's, saying, he's talking to believers here. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Is that kind of surprising to you? Any of you guys uh, test yourselves daily for something? Any of you guys test yourself for diabetes? Yeah. And, and so you, you run that little deal? And what are you testing? You're checking your blood sugar. You're testing it, right? You know what this says? Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You say, well, uh, is that really necessary? Well, apparently it is. Well, I, I thought if you came to know Christ, you've got security in Christ. Well, you do. But not everyone who says the words has said it with their heart. Right? I mean, the Billy Graham Association will tell you that not everyone who comes forward and prays the prayer. I, I was the follow-up chairman in a particular city for the Billy Graham Crusade. So we got all these pastors, and we're going through these Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cards. And you know what was interesting? It, it, the Graham Association will tell you, basically 10 to 15% who come forward are even interested in follow-up, are even interested in, in the discipleship. They're even interested in getting in. In other words, we contact these 80, 85%. A lot of them wouldn't even acknowledge it. Why is that? Well, they prayed the prayer. Yeah, but you know what? Maybe their mother-in-law wanted them to go down and pray the prayer. I mean, I don't know. They had absolutely no interest. Test yourselves to see what? If you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Uh, flip over to uh, Second um, Timothy. Look again to Second Timothy. Look at uh, 9 and 10, 2 Tim, uh, Timothy uh, 4. Uh, Paul says, make every effort to come to me soon. Now watch this. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What happened? Demas loved this present world. You love this present world? Love of the Father is not in you. He was a guy who made a profession of faith, but not with his heart. See, if Demas had attested himself, apparently he would have fallen short. Look at, uh, 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 look at um, 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Huh. There are false teachers in the church. There are false believers in the church. Isn't that interesting? You say, wait a minute, Steve, you're kind of rocking my boat here. This shouldn't rock your boat. Because let me tell you something. If, if, if you've embraced Christ alone by faith, and you believe that he's God, and you believe he's the son of God, and you believe he went to the cross, and he's your creator, and he's your master, and he's your savior, and, 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 and you've asked him to come into your life and oversee your life, and, and you have a desire to please him, and, and you want to grow, listen, there's all kinds of assurance. There's all kinds of assurance. And one of the ways you know you're in the kingdom, and one of the ways that you know that you're a son of God, is that when you pray, you're very conscious of your sin and your shortcomings, and you're going to pray, forgive me my debts as I forgive those who have 
trespassed against me. See, one of the marks is, here's one of the marks. Here's one of the ways you can test yourself. People who have wronged you, people who have blindsided you, people that have hurt you, do you forgive them? It's one of the ways you know. Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther was talking about the assaults of the enemy. And one of the assaults of the enemy is that when someone wrongs us, we have trouble wronging, we have trouble forgiving them. You know, guys, when Christ comes into your life, here's what Luther said. He says, we cannot help being exposed to the assaults, but we pray that we may not fall and perish under them. When someone's done you wrong, how in the world can you ever forgive them? The only way you ever forgive someone who's done you wrong is by understanding the forgiveness that you receive from Christ. Flip over to Psalm 103. See, here's how you test yourself. I don't want, look it. I'm not trying to shake anybody up here. I'm saying if you've trusted in Christ alone, then there is assurance, and you can know that your sins are forgiven. But one of the ways that you know you're in the camp, and one of the ways that you know that, that you're a child of God is that you're able to forgive others because you have been forgiven such a great debt. If you're not able to forgive others, you better check out and see if you're a citizen of the kingdom. You better check out if you understand grace. Where did I say we were going? Psalm 103. This is a great description of the grace of the grace of God. Once I get there. Look at verse, um, look at verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. That's what he's done for us when we come to Christ. He's been compassionate. He's been gracious. He's slow to anger. We're quick to anger. He's slow. And he's abounding in loving kindness. You guys, have you guys ever seen a natural artesian well coming up out of the ground? If you've ever seen it, it's just remarkable. It just, it just bubbles and bubbles and bubbles and bubbles and keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. It's a spring. It just abounds. It just, it just abounds. Well, he abounds in loving kindness. Look at verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. That's the greatest news in the world. Is it not? If he dealt with us according to our sins, where would we be? We'd be in hell. But he hasn't dealt with us according to our sins. See, when he deals with us according to our sins, if he were to deal with us according to our sins, that's justice. I don't need justice. I need mercy. You ever have a cop pull you over and he gives you a warning? Whew. You're going 97 in a school zone. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> no, you're going to jail on that one, and you ought to go to jail. You're going 15 miles over the speed limit. The guy says, you know, I'm just going to give you a warning. Whew. What do you deserve? You deserve a ticket. That's what you deserve. But he hasn't dealt with you according to your sin. Uh, next line. He hasn't rewarded us according to our iniquity. If God rewarded us according to our iniquities, what would we have? Nothing. But he hasn't done that. Look at 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know in the Old Testament, 
they got all that, you know, ceremonial stuff and all this when they do the sacrifices and all that stuff. And it's kind of boring when you read that at five in the morning sometimes. But, you know, you're reading along in those sections and you'll find that they would bring a goat into the camp. And they would place the sins of the people on the goat. And then you know what do they do with the goat? They'd send him out. They'd send him away. Therefore, the term scapegoat. You know what he's done with your sin and my sin? You know what he's done? And man, have we sinned? Man, have we screwed up? You bet we have. Are we ashamed? Are we humiliated? Do we wish we could get it back and change it? Yeah, but we can't. So what does he do? He removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. It's not even associated with us anymore. We've been forgiven. And let me tell you something. When you get that, you're going to forgive others. Are you not? You bet you're going to forgive others. Because of what's been done for you, you're not going to forgive this guy? Are you kidding me? Sure you're going to forgive. Now, you say, wait a minute, what to forgive? It doesn't say you forget. It says you forgive. Because God forgets our sin. We remember. I, I, you know, it's interesting how the enemy attacks us sometimes. I've driven down the road before, and all of a sudden, I remember something that happened years ago. Somebody did me wrong. And just, I haven't thought about it in three years. And all of a sudden, it comes up. And you know what happens? I can't believe that. So, and then, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where'd that come from? I haven't thought about that in how long? That came from the enemy. You know, Lord, I remember forgiving him. And I forgive him all over again right now. In fact, I pray that you'll bless his life wherever he is. Just pour your grace on him. Just pour your grace on him and his family. I pray that you overwhelm him with your grace. Now, how can you pray that? Because of what we've received. You see? Joseph said to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for to good in order to bring about this present result. So Joseph was kind to them, and he had compassion on them. That's a sign you're in the camp. That's a sign you're of the faith. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation. Okay? It's the next request. Lead us not into temptation. You guys back in Matthew 6? Okay. Why would you ask the Lord not to lead you into temptation? God's not going to lead you into sin. But the idea here is probably this. One writer says, the prayer seems to be, Lord, don't ever lead us into a trial that will present such a temptation that we will not be able to resist it. It's laying claim to the promise that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able that you may be able to endure it. Now, those are two separate requests, but they can be tied in because a lot of times, a lot of times, a temptation to evil is a temptation not to forgive. Robert Louis Stevenson, the great writer, had uh, morning devotions every day with his family. That's how he started. And on one occasion, um, they would always conclude by praying the Lord's Prayer. And on one occasion, they were praying the Lord's Prayer and uh, he was leading in prayer, and he suddenly stopped, got off his knees, and left the room. Um, 
He'd always been in poor health, and his wife followed him out of the room thinking he had become ill. And she asked him, is, is there anything wrong? And Stevenson said, only this, I'm not able to pray the Lord's Prayer today. That's what's wrong. Because you see, he realized that he was being tempted uh, to not forgive someone that had wronged him deeply. So instead of continuing on with the prayer, he just stopped because he had to go deal with it. Isn't that interesting? See, that's a sign. That's an evidence that God's at work in your life. Now, the last phrase is, the last phrase here is, and I've got to get back to Matthew 6. The last phrase, and we all know this so well. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's probably in your Bible in brackets. And the reason it's in brackets is that the earliest manuscripts don't have that in the text. And you say, wait a minute, does that mean my Bible's wrong? No, it doesn't mean your Bible's wrong, because actually, it, it's, it's, it actually pulls in 1 Chronicles 29.11. If it was added later by a scribe, it's not inaccurate. It's still the Word of God, even though the earliest manuscripts don't have it. And stop and think about it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. His is the kingdom, his is the power, and his is the glory. Uh, William Barclay writes of J.P. Struthers, who was a great, great preacher in a previous century. He writes, J.P. Struthers was a saint of God. He spent all of his life in the servants of a little Reformed Presbyterian church when he could have occupied any pulpit in Britain. Men loved him, and the better they knew him, the more they loved him. Two men were talking of him, and one man knew all that Struthers had done, but did not know Struthers personally. Remembering Struthers' wonderful ministry, he, says, he said to the other man, Struthers will have a front seat in the kingdom of heaven. The other man had known Struthers personally, and his answer was, Struthers would be miserable in a front seat anywhere. And the point was this. There was a kind of man who was always seeking attention and honor for himself. But the man who says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You know, any accolades, guys, that you ever get, I ever get, all the glory goes to him. All of it. Because anything we've ever done is the result of something he has given to us. So that's how you pray. It's a prayer of humility. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you're a father that we can trust with our lives. A lot of us in here have been wounded. Some guys are wounded right now. And we don't need to change who you are. We just need to acknowledge who you are. So we say thank you that you have brought us to know you through Christ. I pray for the guy who may be here that's never yielded his life to you that you would work in his heart and draw him to you, and he would respond as we've taught the word of God tonight, that you would do that by your spirit. We pray these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.